to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning in to our series, Resolve, based out of our study on the book of Daniel. For more information about this sermon and other resources, please visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Lord, we just say, first of all, we're so thankful for all that you've done. We say first that you are a provision, that you are our daily bread, and you are our faithful Father. Lord, as we give, as we continue our worship through giving, we ask that you would use our finances to advance your kingdom. Lord, we're sowing seeds into your kingdom this morning. We pray that hearts would be revived, that oppressed people would be delivered, the hungry would be fed. Lord, in Jesus' name, we ask that you would use our giving. And lastly, God, this morning, we just, as we, as we, as we give, we just say money's not our God. Our hearts don't belong to money. You are our God. You are our faithful Father. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen, amen. We're going to be in Daniel chapter 2 today. If you want to go ahead and turn there. We're starting verse 17. Let's pray over the word. Lord, we love you so much. We honor you in this house. Lord, we believe your word to be inspired, infallible. The breath, your very breath, the breath of the Holy Spirit. We ask that you would speak this morning. Do what only you can do. Have your way, Lord. Cut away anything you need to cut away. Correct us where you need to correct us. Inspire us, God, where you need to inspire us. We want all of our lives to be brought under your authority. We want to live all of our lives for your glory. We want all of our lives to be lived for your kingdom. So as we come to your holy word, we ask that you would shape us, lead us. It's in your precious name that we pray. Somebody say amen. Amen. In the 1720s, 1730s at Oxford, we get the what's originally called the Holy Club. They're going to be called Bible Moths, and eventually they're going to be called the Methodists. And there was a group of Oxford students, um, the Wesleys, George Whitfield, John Clayton, who would go on to be a Moravian leader. They were given these names because of their daily devotion to Jesus. They fasted every Monday and Wednesday. They visited prisoners together. They took communion together every week, confessed their sins to one another regularly. Think some teenagers, man, early 20s. They really try to love each other. They serve each other. They challenge one another. And out of that little group of fellowship, the first great awakening is really birthed out of their hearts. Whitfield was the first to bring us open air preaching, which changed the face of the earth. And Wesley, with all of his administrative gift, brought us the Methodist movement. And Whitfield brought Wesley into open air preaching. And Wesley brought Whitfield into his organization, the Methodist movement. And they challenged each other. They developed doctrinally together, although we know they, they bickered over the years. But they, they came to the conclusion together that the Christian must have a born-again experience and that God really intended for you to pass from death to life. And this little tight-knit 
tight-knit group of friends. They absolutely changed the world, totally radically changed the world. 50 years later, maybe 60 years later, and 60 miles just south, there was a group of people called the... um, the Clapham Saints, sometimes called the Clapham Sect. Originally, they were just called the Saints, the Clapham Circle. And it's this group of aristocratic, wealthy people that, um, there's actually a man named John Thornton who bought like a mansion in this section in London. And he bought the mansion with the intention of other believers living with him. The house had 12 rooms. And then he started buying houses around himself. And he's literally this very wealthy man. And he's just buying houses up for believers to be able to have community. And these aristocrats, they're so in contrast with the Holy Club, the Methodists, because George Whitfield is preaching to the poorest of the poor. He's going to coal mines. He's going to the down and out where preachers aren't going. He's going to preach. And then you get 60 years later, these aristocratic, wealthy people, and they're trying to change the world in politics. They are, they, they're bringing all their energy together to try to evangelize India. And they start a colony in Africa that is, um, a free colony. And, um, William Wilberforce was in the Clapham sect, and he, we talk about him a lot. William Wilberforce spent his entire life overthrowing the slave trade in Parliament, arguing against slave trade, and at the end of William Wilberforce's life, the slave trade was overthrown. Um, but his, but his, one of his biographers, um, John Pollock says this, William Wilberforce is proof that a man can change his times, though he can't do it alone. What we know from history is that Wilberforce would have a long day in Parliament arguing, 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 um, arguing against slave trade. And he would come, uh, he would leave exhausted. And what he would do is he would go to Clapham and he would sit at dinner with all of these saints and he would kind of talk. And he would say, this is where I'm struggling and this is what's hard. And then they would pray together and they would sit around and hold hands and ask God to change the world. And then they said on, on mornings when William Wilberforce knew that he was going to Parliament to argue, they would all have breakfast together and then they would hold hands and they would pray, God, you you overthrow this thing. You let your will come to pass. And they partnered, they partnered together and encouraged each other. And William Wilberforce absolutely changed the history of the world, hands down. But he did it with a community behind him. And he, he never said he did it alone. He did it with the support of pastors. There were missionaries. Again, there were aristocratic people who worked high up in, in banks, um, aristocratic people, and they met and they lived life together and they changed the world together. The world would not be what it is today without this group called the Clapham set. And then, then maybe a hundred years later, going back towards Oxford, again in a hundred mile radius, there's this group of people we call the Inklings. History calls the Inklings and they're Oxford professors, they're writers and authors. And in the Inklings, we get C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien. We get an author named Charles Williams. C.S. Lewis's older brother, Warren, was involved for a while, and Warren said that there were no rules in the Inklings. They had no agenda. They had no elections, that they just met together to enjoy literature, to laugh, to encourage one another. And it's in this setting that Lewis is totally challenged by Tolkien. It's in this setting that Tolkien intellectually puts Lewis on his heels, and Lewis gives his life to the gospel. And they... Lewis and Tolkien together shared this belief that through legend and through myth, for centuries the mode many cultures had used to communicate their deepest truths, but through legend and through myth, a taste of the the Christian gospel's true myth, to the truth of the gospel story, could be smuggled past the barriers and biases of secularized readers. 
So Tolkien and Lewis decided that they could smuggle the gospel into secular families' homes through telling us of Narnia and Middle Earth. But without Tolkien, there is no Lewis, and without Lewis, there is no Tolkien. Their friend Charles Williams died right after World War II, and Lewis wrote this in his book, Four Loves. I just want to read it to you quickly. He said this, In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all of his facets. Listen to what he says. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald Tolkien's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of him. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness and resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition for each of us, the, the, the love that each of us has for God. For every soul, seeing him in her own way, doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. Lewis says, now that Charles is dead, I don't have more of Tolkien, I have less of him, because I don't get to watch him laugh at Charles. And in the same sense, he's saying, we don't really know Jesus like we would know Jesus in the midst of other believers, because Jesus is too big for one person to grasp all of. You spend all of your life learning him. You spend all of your life catching new glimpses of him. And he's saying that in community, in fellowship, we actually learn much more of Jesus than we would if we were siloed. And as I've attempted to reflect on our passage this week, and I've thought about Daniel, and I've thought about this little fellowship of men who really try to live holy, I've started to reflect on my own life, and I've come to the conclusion, and I think that I really believe this, that the the greatest blessing that God provides you in your life as a Christian is not money, it's not wealth, it's not influence, but I think the greatest blessing that God gives the believer in the Christian life is real, genuine friendship. The greatest blessing I have in my Christian life is God bringing specific, particular people in my life at the right moment to challenge, encourage, uphold me. Specific people who get me, y'all, and I'm a little weird, who like get my jokes, who laugh, who mourn with us when Haley and I need, need someone to mourn with us. The greatest gift I think God gives us, again, is not influence, but is people to really stand with you and to really love you and to really encourage you. And as we're talking about Daniel's life in this moment where, remember, Nebuchadnezzar said that they're going to tear their limbs, they're going to tear their body from limb to limb, and then they're going to destroy their house. And I mentioned to you that we have history uh, that says that Darius issued a decree like this just a couple hundred years later. And. We also know from history when they tore down your house, oftentimes they were turning houses into public restrooms. So they'd kill you, tear your house down, and your house would become a public restroom as kind of a sign that we reject you. Y'all better not be peeing on my house. I catch you peeing on my house, we won't have trouble, okay? Better get your butt to the bathroom. But in this moment, I've like let my mind circle this this week. God, God 
didn't have to give Daniel community. In Daniel's captivity, in his sorrow and his stress, God gives him three other men, but not just three, any other men. He could have, they, they could have been other Jewish men there for sure, but they could have been the backslider who wanted to party with the Chaldeans, right? They could have been the men who wanted to go get a little wild with the girls down the street. But God gave him three specific men who really loved God with all of their heart. And as Daniel's experiencing trial, he leans into fellowship and God has blessed him with support in a season of anxiety and fear and stress. The the greatest blessing of God in Daniel's life in this moment is that he doesn't stand alone. And I think God in his sovereignty and in his goodness, he causes our paths to collide with specific people. People who get us. People who laugh when you're weird. 1 Samuel 18.1 says that, speaking of, of David, as soon as he finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. We talk a lot about negative soul ties, and for good reason, but there are some soul ties from God. There are times where God gives, puts people in your life, and your hearts become so knit together, and it's for God's glory. It's for the advancement of God's kingdom. It's so that you have character on days when you don't feel like having character. But we don't believe in a form of strict determinism. Determinism is... um, Basically means that, that God has ordained every single thing that comes to pass and all of your life is meticulously determined, perfectly determined. I, I don't believe that at all. Um, but as Arminian Wesleyan people, oftentimes we slip into what's called open theism or deism. And so from our perspective, Sometimes we think of God as the person who just winds up the clock and walks away. And and that's a mistake. God is not the God who winds up the clock and walks away. He's the God who knows that you're going to have trouble tomorrow and has already prepared how you're going to get out of that trouble. He's two steps ahead of the enemy, already weaving your tragedy together for his glory. He's the God who's involved. So when you pull those two ideas together, that God is the God who's involved, although he doesn't force you along and God intends to bring people into your life to bless you with real friendships, then the logical conclusion is that God might be trying to bring people into your life who would be the greatest blessing of your entire life, but you have to be involved in that process. You have to learn to value community. You have to, you have to really put yourself out there and show up to things and talk with people. We talk so much about in the last 20 years, y'all, I'm yakking, I'm going to get to my passage. We talk so much in the last 20 years about the idea of ecclesia. That ecclesia is the Greek word for church. And we've talked about the fact that the, the idea of the word ecclesia carries with it this nuance of like a governing power and a governing authority. And so we've talked about the church as having the authority of God on the earth. And there's a lot of truth to that. And the, the word does carry those nuances. But there's a study in Christian theology. It's called ecclesiology. It's the study of the church. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you remember the German martyr, was absolutely in love with ecclesiology. He studied it. He wrote it. He talked about it. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer's closest friend said of Bonhoeffer, Bonhoeffer became a Christian because he was deeply lonely. And what he saw in Christianity was not just this group of governing people, but what he saw in Christianity was a body of selfless, 
lovers of one another, like real encouraging people. And so I want to challenge your understanding of church this morning. Is church just what we do on Sunday mornings? And then we've been saying this a lot and we mean it, that the church ought to happen outside of the four walls of our building. But, but by that, sometimes we just mean evangelism. And if you guys know me, know me, you know, I think we need to be doing a lot more evangelism. We do need to do evangelism, but is church just evangelism. Because what Bonhoeffer was obsessed with was Jesus saying, by this, they'll know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And what I would, what I want to just lobby before us this morning is how does the church in the 21st century really love each other deep enough that the outside community is attracted to the church if the church in the 21st century are, were casual acquaintances at best? How do we really love each other if we don't really know each other? And in what context are we going to be intentional to really love and know each other? The church is as a community, a body that celebrates what in Greek is called koinonia fellowship. It means this is deep, selfless, sacrificial love for one another. That agape, selfless love flourishes amongst this body of people. That in this body of people, there is no competition, there's no striving, but there is this selfless, like I want to love you, encourage you, support you. I want to see you at your best. I'm not going anywhere. I'm going to stand here. Even in your mess, I'm walking with you. I'm not going to let you be who you want to be. I'm going to hold you accountable to fulfill the call of God. God on your life, you're stuck with me. That's what the church is according to scripture. But again, in the 21st century, we like to show up on Sundays, hear the word and worship, which we need. I'm not coming against that at all. But at some point in some avenue, we've got to recover what the New Testament church understood as church. We've got to recover a deep, real, passionate love for one another. And so Sue has been working, trying to organize these connect groups. And we don't really have any big agenda with our connect groups other than we're trying to really love each other and to really support each other. And I don't, if I don't know what you're going through, I can't help you. And so at some point through the week, we need to sit down across from each other. You need to look me in the eye and tell me what's going on. At some point, we've got to get past ourselves and make time and, and be intentional to create community. And as I thought about Daniel this week, I wanted to mention this. In the same way that I just walked you through significant groups of men in a hundred mile radius that changed the earth, I could just as easily walk you through the last 200 years of incredibly talented, gifted teachers of the word of God who siloed and totally fell apart. It would be just as easy for me to rattle off men and women of God who seemed like they had everything going for them only to be exposed that they're living in sexual sin, addicted to drugs and stealing money. It's just as easy to show you how when you silo, you set yourself up to fall. They fell in love with people falling in love with them. People who love the feeling of people thinking that they hung the moon. And I don't want to disappoint you this morning, but I really don't care how spiritual you think I am. What I care about is someone in this room knowing what I'm going through so I don't get taken out. 
my, my agenda, and I want to just lobby this as a church. We've said this a hundred times. What we're after is down-to-earth, spirit-filled living. We do not we do not accept hyper-spirituality in which some people are more spiritual than others. I'm not trying to prove to you how great I am. I want to live honest enough that when I'm struggling, you can hold my arms up. And as I thought about Daniel this week, I wanted to say this. God anointed the fellowship of Jonathan and David. God anointed the fellowship of Daniel and these three young men. He drew their hearts together. They were better men because of it. But the enemy always counterfeits God's work. And I'm sure of this. That he also attempts to draw people into your life to lead you astray. I wanted to read to you from Acts 20 verse 36. Paul, he's going to say goodbye to the Ephesian elders. I want to preach this passage one day, but today's not the day. And he calls the Ephesian elders to come down to Miletus, which is like 50 miles south. I think I'm right about that. Because Paul was persecuted in, in Ephesus and he wasn't, he was trying to hurry to Jerusalem. So he, he asked him to kind of meet him in the middle. And so the Ephesian elders meet him in Miletus. And this is what he says at the end, uh, what Luke tells us about the end. So when Paul finished speaking to the Ephesian elders, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied Paul to his ship. And so... They say this is the last time they're going to get to see Paul. And they're broken, weeping, because they really love the man. Because God brought the man by his sovereignty and providence. God anointed that man to come to their city and to lead them to Jesus. And there was this real heart connection. And so they're weeping and broken. And then Paul says this in Acts twenty twenty nine. He says this to them. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. What is Paul saying? That I know that God brought me here. I know God sent me to preach this gospel to you. I know God knit our hearts together. I know God used me and used you to release his gospel in this city. But I promise you that the enemy is going to bring people too. I promise you that there's an enemy's attention to bring savage wolves amongst you and try to destroy what we have going on. What I'm trying to say to you today is that in the same way that God brings people into your life and God intends for you to be encouraged and upheld and supported by people, the enemy also intends to bring people into your life. And you've got to decide what kind of community you're going to find yourself in. Secular teachers teach us this, that your your five closest friends, if you just kind of blend them together, that's what you'll be in the future. I think the friends you choose exposes your value system. So Daniel had opportunity to build community with magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans. Again, men from all over the world who were different, intriguing, socially different, culturally different. But I think he realized that even in his captivity, God blessed him with real fellowship, with a community of support. And he, like the Wesley brothers, the Clapham Circle, Tolkien and Lewis, built his life around Shadrach, Meshach, and that billy goat. So we pick up this morning in Daniel 2, starting in verse 17. And last week we discussed that Nebuchadnezzar's demand is not only that, that the wise men interpret his dream, but they tell him what his dream is. And Daniel has no biblical account of this happening thus far. I keep wanting to mention that Daniel's life feels so much like Joseph's life. There's so much going on that's similar. But even Joseph wasn't given the dream of Pharaoh. He interprets the dream. So let's read, starting in Daniel 17, we're going to read down through verse 30. Daniel went to his house, and he made known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, 
he told them to seek mercy from the God of heavens concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. To whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might. And listen to this. And have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. Commentators mentioned that um, Daniel asked Nebuchadnezzar for an appointed time. So he asked, essentially, can I come back later? And Nebuchadnezzar gives him time, probably because, remember, we learned from chapter 1 that Daniel has, has great favor in the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar. And so Nebuchadnezzar gives him some time. But, but commentators mentioned that it, it would have been just as easy and maybe even rational for Daniel to say, give me an hour, I'm going to go, uh, this is what I would do. give me an hour, I'm going to go get in the closet, I'm going to rock on the ground and cry for a while, try to pray in tongues or something, and I'll come back and tell you what happens. Um, but he doesn't do that. He asks for enough time to get home to his community. He asks for enough time to get home to Daniel, or to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Um, he asks for enough time, give, give me time for us to go deal with this issue for us to pray to our God. So he doesn't fight from a place of independence. Again, I'd rock and cry. Roll on the ground. Chew on the carpet. That works sometimes. Y'all didn't know. Sometimes you just chew on the carpet a little bit and some of this really releases some kind of anointing. And, or dog doo-doo in your mouth, one another. Ooh, y'all nasty. Oh. So here in this moment, surely he's battling fear. Nebuchadnezzar is going to tear him limb from limb. He's faced with anxiety. He has to overcome this feeling of being distraught. The passage tells us that he's emotional. Not directly, but it tells us that he was a human being. So I'm inferring that he was emotional. And when we're faced with these kind of scenarios, we have to fight with everything in us to keep our peace. You know what I'm talking about? When there's tragedy, a crisis, anxiety begins to flood in all of your heart, you're trying to keep peace. And so you start quoting scripture at yourself. You start reminding yourself of the truth. And you need to learn to do that. You need to learn to, you need to shove some scripture down in your head. I'm going to lobby a connect group. Drew Waters is doing a scripture memorization group. You need to stud, shove some scripture down in your head and stand on the word and believe. But sometimes, listen to me, There are times in my season where I ain't strong enough. There are times in my life where I'm in seasons where the enemy has totally kicked my head in. Again, I don't care how spiritual you think I am. There are times where I'm really struggling and I'm doing all I can to get out of bed in the morning. And one of the quickest ways for me to experience deliverance is for a man or a woman of God to look me in the eye and speak truth at me. Sometimes I don't have it in me to speak truth at myself. I need some men of God, anointed men of God to look me in the face and remind me who I am. There's deliverance in people speaking at you sometimes. You can walk in pride and feel like you're so strong, but I ain't doing it. I'm telling you, there are seasons where it takes everything I can to put my shoes on, yo. I'm like, I'll pay you $2, kids, to put my shoes on. (laughs) 
And I think he, I think he huddled up with his friends and he said, we're going to pray. And I think they settled each other. I think they said, God is good. God is faithful. Don't freak out. And I think he found what we all find, these little moments of deliverance, little moments of the voice of the enemy being totally silenced in my ear when a man or woman of God with the anointing of the Spirit speaks the truth of the word at me. I think he found peace there. But your pride says, stand on your own. Prove your internal fortitude. Prove how strong you are. Daniel could have said, I'm going to figure this out on my own and then everyone will know how great I am when I deal with this, but he doesn't. Wisdom says, use all the tools you've got. Wisdom says it ain't about looking strong, it's about being strong. Sometimes being strong means you get some help. Ecclesiastes 4.12 says, and though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. These ideas fill the scripture, but we don't take them seriously. We don't take them seriously at all. Listen to me, there are some battles in your life that victory and defeat hang in the balance dependent on who you have in your corner. There are sometimes the enemy assaults your life and you need some people standing in the corner with you. You need to learn to communicate. You need to learn to be honest. As pastor, I'm saying, don't you dare suffer in silence because you're too worried about looking good. I don't care if you look good. I care how much peace you're walking in. Don't you care, pretend like you, don't you dare pretend like you got it all together when you're struggling? Be honest. And you could say, what, what matters in those moments is my relationship with Jesus, and that's true. Jesus is faithful. Jesus is true. Jesus is gonna stand with you. Jesus is never gonna leave you or forsake you. That's not the problem. You're the problem. You are not faithful. You are not true. You are not consistent. You are emotional. And you get tired. And when you get tired, you lose focus. When you get tired, you say things you shouldn't have said. When you're worn out, you you go down roads that you shouldn't go through. I I understand Jesus is my center. He is faithful. But sometimes I need y'all to help me be faithful. Sometimes when I'm tired and I lose focus, I need somebody to help me regain my focus. So just quickly... Who's speaking truth at you? I'm asking you this directly this morning. Who is speaking truth to you? When you struggle, men in the room, who's looking you in the eye and asking you about your marriage? When's the last time somebody asked you, hey, just to make sure you're not struggling with pornography, are you? When's the last time somebody really asked you heart-wrenching questions? And women in the room, who's, who's talking to you? Who's encouraging you? Who's holding you accountable? The enemy is perfectly content with you flexing your muscle and pride, not wanting anyone to see the chinks in your armor. Because when you stand alone, you're weak. And I want to work this morning to make this conversation not totally self-focused. Because again, I'm encouraging you to find community. I'm encouraging you to consider connect groups. Get yourself in a connect group. You find some community. And, and I'm confessing to you this morning that in the past, I've been guilty of not always being involved in the life and the body of the church. I've showed up on Sunday and even preached and taught at churches that I worked at. And I wasn't always involved in, in any kind of small groups or some of our connect groups right now are just outreach groups. I didn't always plug into the body because I felt like I had enough community. And, and in reality, I had plenty of 
when you work in ministry, I got plenty of pastors calling me. How are you doing? What's going on? I had plenty of accountability, but I had never considered the fact that maybe there were people in the body who needed me. So you could say this morning, I have plenty of community in this church. I've been in this church for 20 years. I got plenty of friends. Well, let's talk about the people who haven't been in this church for 20 years. Who's going to sit down with them, look them in the face and say, how are you doing? Let's talk about the people who got saved yesterday. Who's going to, maybe, maybe you're called to disciple people. And understand sometimes that's hard. Like, how do I disciple people? Well, well, just sign yourself up for a connect group and meet with people every week. Sit down with somebody. Have a conversation with somebody. Sometimes we feel like we're set, but how set are the people who just stumbled in here, knows no one? How set are they and how are they going to get set? Who's going to get them set? The second thing's again is that Daniel asked for time to get prayer. He he understood that he wasn't he didn't want to fight this battle in prayer alone, but he was going to find some people to stand with him and pray with him. He doesn't pray for 30 minutes and hope everything works out, but he goes and he calls a prayer this is a good old-fashioned prayer meeting. He's got people praying for him, he's got people praying with him. And again, he's not concerned with winning this battle alone to prove his own strength. He just wants to win. The man just don't want to die. And it is utterly, utterly a strategy of the enemy to make you think you're beyond needing people to pray for you. It is absolutely a strategy of the enemy to make you think that you're strong enough that you don't need to text people when you're struggling. If Paul asked the churches to pray for him, you need somebody praying for you. Men in the room, if Paul asked the church to pray for him, who's praying for you? At what point are you looking other men in the eye and saying, I need you to cover me in prayer. I'm going through a season of trial. I need you to uphold me. I need you to encourage me. I need you to cover me. Who's who's praying for you? And who do you know well enough who, who actually has a pulse on your life? Again, the early church lived this way. They lived and did life together. They, they knew what was going on in one another's lives. We don't. We show up and walk out. I'm encouraging you to get yourself in some kind of community where someone has enough pulse on your life to pray with you. And again, you can make this conversation self-focused and say, I have people praying for me, but who are you praying for? And what about the people who don't have people praying for them? What about the person who just moved to the city? And, 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 And we keep saying we exist to move this community into an encounter with God. And we keep praying for God to really save some folks and to really reach some people. And we've seen God do some wonderful things, but how are we going to disciple people that actually get saved? And when somebody moves here and wants to plug into the church and how do they plug in and how are they going to meet people and who's going to pray for it? Who's going to pray for the person who knows no one in the church? Well, I'll scream at them. You need to get in a connect group. So again, we can make this about, I have people praying for me, but who are you praying for? Is there a point in your week that you've designated just to sit down with some believers and hear where they are? Put your fingers on somebody's pulse and hear their life, hear their life story. Do you know well enough what's going on in the lives of other believers in the room? Do you know who's sick? Do you know whose mother or father just died? Do you know whose marriage is struggling? Do you know those kind of things? Are you totally self-consumed? Because the early church knew those kind of things. And the early church stood with each other and they prayed for another and they were an absolutely attractive community because they loved each other selflessly. 
but we're a consumer-driven society. And we want to show up on Sundays. We want someone to preach. We want the worship to be good. Thank God for good worship. I ain't trying to hear bad worship. You know what I'm saying? I'm, I'm with you. But we want the worship to be good and we want to be left alone. And I get that. Your boy's an introvert. I get it. I get it. But at some point, to be the church means that you pastorally actually care for people. And I'm, I'm going to keep just beating this drum. We, we have to learn to be a community that is not self-absorbed. We've got to learn to live selflessly. The scriptures say that God, the, the, Jesus said it's, it's better to give than to receive. We, we always say that life is found in giving your life away. You learn to live selfless and watch how rich life becomes. A self-driven, when you, when you live your life only concerned with what's happening in you, that's miserable, absolutely miserable, utterly miserable. Start living for somebody else, man. And the last thing is this. Daniel, Daniel says, God gives us, us success. He makes known to us the king's matter. He says, you have now made known to me what we have asked for. His battle wasn't fought alone and his victory is not celebrated alone. Romans twelve fifteen, Paul tells the, the Roman church to... Rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. Again, I know I feel like I'm being harsh this morning. But as a body, how do you really mourn with one another if you don't really know one another? How do you really rejoice with those who rejoice if you don't have no clue what's going on in anybody else's life? And God has done some incredible things in this room over the last couple months. But if we don't really share with each other, if we're not really spending time with one another, we'll never really be able to rejoice. And God will never really get the glory that he deserves for the things he's done. Daniel says God gave us victory. Gave us victory. He doesn't fight alone. He doesn't celebrate alone. Daniel understands that God's blessing in his life at this moment is that he has three friends who really love him. And he wraps his life up in this little community. They mourn together. They rejoice together. They freak out together. They find peace together. And I just want to say this. God's delivered me of some stuff over the years, man. I've told y'all, life wasn't always pretty. And I've celebrated when he's delivered me. I've been so excited at some of the things that God's brought me through. But I've watched God deliver some folks that I've been praying for. And ain't nothing like that kind of dance right there. But if you're not really like standing with people, you can't celebrate when people celebrate. You don't have any connection to that. There's nothing like celebrating somebody else's victory. But you've got to fight with somebody. And it's got to be more than just showing up on Sunday and bailing out real quick. You've got to really plug yourself into the body of a church. If this isn't your home church, I'm not saying you've got to do that here, but you need to do it somewhere. You need to plug into a body. We need to spend some time really trying to understand what the church is as an organism, what kind of community it's encouraged to be scripturally. So in conclusion, I just want to say a few more things. This year, we decided to make our little connect groups um, a little less rigid because we're really just trying to foster conversation, prayer, friendship. We believe that maybe the greatest blessing of God to your life is sitting in the room 
that you can really develop some deep friendships that would change your life. And we're trying to foster an environment where you can do that. So we, we've got some groups that are studies and, and some of us need to be in a study. We got some groups that we got a group, um, on doctrine that for some of you are new in your faith and you need to learn some doctrine. And th- those are, those are good groups. We got some groups that, that are just kind of Bible studies, helping you get to where you need to go. Then we've got some groups that are just focused on outreach. We've got a group of guys that goes to prison ministry. We've got a, a group that's going to work at the Boys and Girls Club. We've got, if that's where you are and you just want to plug in the outreach, plug in, plug in where you want to plug in. We've got some groups that are just coffee. Some of y'all just need some coffee. Some of your life is that bad. Your life is that bad. You just need coffee. And so you got a little sheet. And again, we don't care where you plug in, but we're urging you to plug into the body. We're urging you to make community a core value in in your life and in the life of your family. Teach your kids the value of community. Teach your grandchildren what it means to to be open and honest, to ask for prayer, to to get encouragement. And, and, And just in closing, if you feel like God's drawing you to this body, and if not, that's totally fine. I'm Again, I'm not trying to say anything. But if you feel like this is the church that God's called you to and you want to plug yourself in here, maybe God's calling you here because he's setting you up for some real relationships that would support you for the rest of your life. Maybe there are some things about Jesus that you don't quite see with your eyes that he intends to teach you through the eyes of another. Maybe there's a season of trial coming and God wants you to be shored up relationally. Maybe there's a season of sickness coming and God wants somebody around you who's going to put your hands on you and pray. If you feel like God's drawing you here, he might be drawing you to this community because we're more than just a Sunday morning experience. We're a body of people who really love each other. We believe God's knit our hearts together. We believe God's using us to reach this community. And it's not just consumerism. It's really caring for, really loving each other. Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.